Back to the prophecy of Isaiah. I invite your attention with me this morning. Uh, to the 55th chapter, we will return. We stopped last week in the middle of that chapter. But I'm going to uh, back up just a couple of verses for the sake of context. So we'll begin our reading actually at verse 6 of Isaiah 55. Uh, we're going to do that because it would otherwise be too easy for us, I think, to consider these verses without regard to the, the original setting. Our text this morning, which begins actually at verse 8, actually supplies the supporting reasons, arguments, for what has come before, specifically the call to repentance we heard last week. You'll notice as we read the repeated use of the word for, which indicates that reasons are being supplied now for this call to return to the Lord. So beginning at verse 6 today, uh, we'll be kept honest to the text uh, by the text itself. But first, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon your holy word, that it will not return to you void, but accomplish that for which you send it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 55, picking up at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth uh, and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word... uh, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You thought that I was altogether like you. You remember that rebuke from Asaph's psalm, Psalm 50. You thought I was altogether like you. The speaker of those words, of course, is God. And the shoe fits, doesn't it? Far too often, in far too many ways, we think of God in our own terms. We reduce him to our own level of thinking. We fashion in our own minds an image of God that is not at all accurate to his true person and character, altogether, of course, in keeping with our own pathetic little imaginations about God. 
Not long ago, I heard a, a comedian ask out loud, he said, I wonder if God grades on a curve. If so, he continued, shouldn't we be trying to get as many people to sin as possible? Or would that be sinful, he asked. The fact is, where God has believed it all, often it is thought that he must certainly grade on a curve. Just one way that we've come to think of God altogether in our own terms, like ourselves, or maybe like our uh, freshman algebra teacher who depended on the curved style of grading to make up for whatever was lacking in the classroom. But God is not like us. We do bear his image, of course, that is true, but that does not give us license then to follow the thread backwards and knit our own uh, God in our own image. In reverse, that was the great sin of Isaiah's day, by the way. They thought about God in terms not as he had been revealed to them, what he had revealed about himself, but what their sinful, overweening hearts wanted God to be for them. The same for us today. Our God is far too small, too pliable, too fickle, a figment of our imagination. I like to think of God as... And you fill in the blank. I like to think of God like a great architect, or I like to think of God as a great grandfather, and so on. Well, of course we like to think of him in those ways. We want a God of our own making, one made in our image. We want a God with whom we can be comfortable, one who fits our agenda, who grades on a curve. The Apostle Paul tells us we're all such speculative theology finally brings us, in his letter to the Corinthians, the world did not know God through wisdom. Of course it didn't. Worldly wisdom falls flat. Even the brightest, smartest philosophers turn out to be little more enlightened compared to the rest of the world of men than those little bumps that uh, represented the mountains on that globe that was in my grandparents' house that I, as a child, loved to run my uh, fingers over and and feel the, the mountains. No higher than other men, I say, than those mountains were over sea level on that globe. From the bottom of those mountains, of course, looking up, they seem very impressive, but the view from outer space shows them to be very small indeed. God, the God of Scripture, that is, is transcendent. He is high and mysterious and inscrutable. He is, well, immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, as you just said a few moments ago at the beginning of this worship. You will not find him by speculation. You will not find God by guessing at what he must be like or looking deeply inside yourself. So when he calls us, as he is calling us in this passage, as he calls all men to repent, all of you in the hearing of my voice right now to repent, that is to turn to him, to seek him and to find him, you'll need to know where to look. Which brings me to the first point. Because God is calling us to repentance, we must learn his ways and thoughts. 
Verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, our thoughts are earthbound. <coughs> our ways are bound to earth. God's thoughts and God's ways are altogether different, higher than the heavens above the earth, even more. That means, of course, that we cannot think God's thoughts. Not completely, anyway. So many are his thoughts. In fact, we may say in awe with the psalmist, how vast is the sum of them? But we can think God's thoughts on those matters on which he has revealed his thoughts to us. And in so doing, be raised in our thinking from earth's meager level to the heights of heaven itself. Now, let me give you a few examples. First, uh, for example, think about God's thoughts of man compared to man's thoughts of man. And we'll start with the latter. Man's thoughts of man, that is, our thoughts about ourselves, run somewhere along the lines of admiration, confidence, and praise. We say things like, um, like what we read from the Humanist Manifesto, uh, the second Humanist Manifesto in particular, a couple of weeks ago. While there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. End quote. Well, that, my friends, is typical human thinking. We may not say it exactly that way. Now, there are more and less sophisticated ways of putting that thought to be sure, but that is what we think. In our earthbound thoughts, we're quite convinced that in the end, we will be able to make our own way, save ourselves by our own wit, our own talents, our own abilities, our own works, our own powers, our own merits. We will save ourselves. Thank you. Very much. God's thoughts of us, on the other hand, are quite different indeed. While he made us in his image, the Bible tells us, he also knows that we have marred that image by our sin. Though he made us for fellowship for him, with himself, we have broken that fellowship by our sin and have created a gulf between ourselves and God that we could never, by any means of our own, possibly begin to bridge. While we think of ourselves as basically good, or maybe at our most humble moments we might admit, well, you know, our mixture of, of good and bad, of course, you know, mostly good, God knows that the heart is deceitful, above all things, and desperately sick. That we are filled with all manner of unrighteousness and, and evil. And that our best works, at their very best, are filthy rags. That's the first area in which our thoughts must needs rise to the level of God's thoughts, our thoughts about ourselves. There's another second area in which our thoughts need to rise to his, our thoughts about him. Derek Thomas whom I thanked personally at General Assembly a few weeks ago for his commentary on 
Isaiah makes it his observation that, quote, ever since the 17th century, the Western world has been busily shrinking God to fit the minds of men. Deists taught that God is remote from the world, so remote that we can effectively uh, forget uh, all about him. In the 18th century, Immanuel Kant suggested more or less that it was confused and naive to think that God, if he exists, communicates with men. Hence, the Bible cannot be the word of God. God was suitably silenced. The 19th century continued the shrinking of God, arguing that God is no more than the highest thoughts that we have about him. And the result of all this has been a century of confused thinking about God. End quote. And Dr. Thomas is, of course, exactly right. God, if he exists at all in the minds of many Westerners today, rates little more than a bumper sticker or the butt of a joke. God's thoughts of God, on the other hand, the thoughts we will want to think of him are much higher. And we may begin in the temple where Isaiah was back in chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. God is, according to the scripture, perfectly, impeccably, Holy, the thrice holy God, transcendent, and also pure in that idea. So pure, in fact, that his eyes cannot even look at sin. God, according to Scripture, is perfectly just, a holy and just judge, and therefore he must punish sin. His justice must be satisfied. Someone must pay for the offense that we have committed against him by breaking his law. And then, let our thoughts also rise to his love. God is love, the scripture says. Not, not puppy dog love, now not Santa Claus stuff here, but stay with me. His, his love is pure and holy love, just love. Love that is not indifferent to justice or to his holiness. Perfect love. Love that drives out fear. John Calvin, on verse 9, had this to say. In short, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive. So that it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we do not obtain pardon from him. There is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. For the consequence is that we do not venture to approach him and flee from him as an enemy and are never at rest. Which leads to a third area in which our thinking needs to be brought up to the heights of God's thoughts and that is Christ. Earthbound thoughts of Jesus keep him at the level of a mere man. You know, maybe a good man, perhaps a kind man, even an exceptional man, but still just a man. 
But we start thinking God's thoughts after him when we make it our conviction that he is the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. Our minds soar to heaven's heights when we know him as the one by whom all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the pre preeminent one who, despite his place and glory, came down all the way from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, who as the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then rose triumphant from the grave and ascended into heaven and is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we have our thoughts raised to heaven's heights from earth when forth we think God's thoughts concerning salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, from anything that we can bring. Earthbound thinking, here's those words, free gift. And Huff's, there's nothing free. There's no free lunch. There's nothing to gain but that I have to give. An earthbound mind cannot conceive of receiving without contributing, without payment of some form. The mind that thinks God's thoughts after him, on the other hand, says, of course it's free to me. How can it be anything else? Jesus paid it all. He endured the cross. He drank the cup of the wrath of God to its dregs, to the last drop for my sin in my place. Willingly, he took my sin upon himself and gave me his righteousness in return. The shepherd for the sheep, the servant for the sinner. How can it be anything else but free to me if such a price has been paid? And how may I receive it but the way that the Bible says, with the empty hand of faith? All I must do is trust in him, repent of my sin, turn and believe in him. When you're thinking those thoughts, you're thinking God's thoughts. You've left the, the banal, commonplace, earthly, tit-for-tat, uh, nothings-free thinking of a small God and big people and soared instead to the heights, the heavenly heights of sheer grace and unmerited favor granted from an inexpressibly loving God to an utterly ill-deserving people. Those are God's thoughts. Those are God's ways. Because God is calling us to repentance, we must learn those, to think that way. 
Second, because God is calling to us to repentance, we must receive his word. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Davis County uh, fields, farmers' fields, as of Tuesday, were uh, labeled, uh, called to be in a critical period. The University of Kentucky uh, Ag Weather Center listed Western Kentucky crops moisture status as abnormally dry prospects deteriorating on Tuesday. The, uh, the farmers were scanning the skies uh, looking for that million-dollar rain, it's called, a drought-breaking rain that uh, breaks the uh, drought. Thursday evening's rain qualified for that title in spades, uh, probably much more than a million dollars worth of crops were saved between the time you went to bed on Wednesday night and got up on Thursday, or was it Thursday morning and Friday, Thursday night and Friday morning. At any rate, the point is, of course, it was a matter of life and death for the crops, for the field. So it is with God's word. Where it goes with saving power, it saves. It accomplishes. From God's mouth, says Isaiah, or God breathed, as Paul puts it in his letter to Timothy, the word of God goes upon the face of the earth and accomplishes all that God intends for it to accomplish. J.I. Packer calls it God's executive instrument in all human affairs that rules the world and that fixes our fortunes for us. The Bible, of course, itself compares itself to the sharpest double-edged sword, living and active, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The power of God's Word. Here's the amazing thing. The repentance, the, the turning over of our lives to God from sin to God in faith and trust for eternal life, God's word accomplishes that in us. Well, it's true, of course, that you must repent. You must turn to God for eternal life. It is the power of God in his Bible that brings repentance about, where God sends his word with saving effectuality, we say, with saving power, the seed of repentance is planted and watered and the soul is saved. It never fails to accomplish God's purpose. That's not the magic of, of ink, you know, black ink on white pages. This isn't magic. It's, it's the power of the divine in his word. No wonder that the, the Gideons who 
so sacrificially devote themselves and their resources to spreading the word of God around the world, getting it translated into different languages and seeing that it should be all over the globe, should make this their theme verse. They're sprinkling seeds of repentance as they spread the word of God. And so are you when you do the same. We must learn God's ways and his thoughts. We must receive God's word. And finally, third, we must watch for the worldwide redemption. These verses have been described as the the fireworks display of bright hope, beginning in verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Many times we've noticed this in Isaiah. And we'll see it again that these prophecies were written to a specific people for a specific day. The Israelites would come out of their Babylonian captivity. Uh, It would happen by God's providence of putting the Persians into power, under whom they would be sent back to the promised land to Zion. And no doubt Isaiah has this in view. But what is foretold here, brothers and sisters, rises higher than that higher still to the heights not yet seen, not yet experienced by God's people. The redemptive work of God brought to its fullness. There is coming a day, my brothers and sisters, when God's redemption, when his work of redemption will be seen in every direction that you look. You won't be able to turn your eyes one way or another without seeing some glorious evidence of his redemption. The curse will be reversed fully, completely. A a renewed humanity will dwell in a renewed creation. There are word pictures, of course, that describe mountains and hills singing and trees clapping their hands. Maybe a little more literal, You know, briars and thorns transformed into cypresses and myrtles. But they're meant to describe, you see, the beauty, the harmony, that even the entire creation at the consummation of redemption will be found in. The the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, writes Paul in his letter to the Romans, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a day that must be! Send your imagination soaring and you will still fall short of the realities yet to come. How certain can you be? How certain can you be that it's actually going to happen? As sure, I tell you, as God's own name, as sure as God's Interest in his own reputation. Verse 13. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. We've seen it before. We've heard it before. God loves his own glory. And 
where he says his own name is on the line, and here it is, he will not fail to act. He will accomplish this, my friends, which is why you need so desperately to repent now and to turn to him today so that you may enjoy the fruits of it. I want for every single one of you in the hearing of my voice right now to enjoy those fruits, to glory in that day, to enjoy that blessing yet to come. Glory is coming. There is no time then for timidity and fear and for delay. God's word is reigning on the earth right now, reigning on your hearts. The kingdom is at hand, nearer now than ever it was. Now is the time. Now is the time to sing and rejoice and to proclaim it without fear. Let that coming day, the day of redemption, reach back and grab you by the collars today. Peter Kreeft put it, puts it this way, and with this we finish. Suppose, now suppose, he writes, both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the, fi- the, the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you when you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less than that of a scratch on a penny. Amen.